Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to AOA. It is already Tuesday, April 19th, and we've got a lot coming on today's program. In segment two today, we're going to be speaking with Jackie Fatka from Farm Progress. We're going to be talking about everything that's going on in Washington, D.C. There have been some updates from the EPA with regard to WOTUS. There have also been some funding announcements from the USDA for rural hospitals. Jackie will have those details for us later on in the program. And in segment three, we're going to speak with Iowa's Secretary of Ag, Mike Nag. Uh, the Iowa Department of Agriculture has been one of the states on the front line battling this HPAI epidemic, the High Path Avian Influenza. Mike is going to bring us up to speed on just how that battle is progressing against that virulent poultry disease. And in segment four, Mike Schultz, the executive director of the Oklahoma Wheat Commission, will be on winter wheat ground continues to stay parched. It's hot. Conditions are deteriorating. Mike's going to give us an update from the Southern Plains. Before we get into all of that, however, we continue to see very, very strong demand for American soybeans. Last week, it was announced from NOPA, the National Organization of Processors, that soy crush hit a record in the month of March. To help shed a little perspective on the soy grind battle, Scott Gurlt, the economist at the American Soybean Association, is joining me now. And Scott, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, Mike, thank you for having me here. I'm excited to talk to you about uh, everything going on in the soy sector right now. Well, and there is a lot going on. Scott, as we were heading into March, I understand economists were expecting a record level of crush. How did this March end up coming out uh, compared to expectations? Yeah, it was pretty close. Um, Overall, the, the NOPA crush number, which uh, NOPA is the National Oilseed Processors Association, and they represent about 95% of the um, soybean crushers are um, up by volume in the U.S. So it's a pretty accurate snapshot of what's going on with crush. Um, and so the number came out pretty close to analyst expectations, it was just slightly lower. Um, but as you mentioned, it, it's a record for the month of March. Um, and, you know, the two prior months, January and February, they weren't records for their months, but they were the second highest. So we've just been having a very, very strong streak uh, with, with crush here. And, you know, crush margins have been very good. Um, there's a, a lot of demand for the soy products right now for meal, but um, especially oil, as I'm sure most of your listeners know at this point, oil, vegetable oil prices have run up quite a bit. And so that's driving a lot of this crush as well. And it has been phenomenal to see the amount of bushels crushed. Scott, as you think seasonal perspectives, when do we typically crush the most soybeans in this country? Yeah, Mike, that's uh, right after soybean harvest. So you're, you're typically seeing that in the last three months of a calendar year. So October, November, December are generally your, your highest crushed months. Um, although this is still a, a strong time of year, but not quite as strong. And then um, we'll crush throughout the year, but you'll start to see less and less, um, especially as you get towards the end of the summer um, before the next harvest hits. That's generally the lowest point of the year. That certainly makes sense. It's all about that availability. Scott, as we're thinking about this report, in March, it was noted that the March crush was up 10% from the February crush. That's a huge jump in a very short time span. Was this due to oil demand caused by the Russia-Ukraine war? I, I think that that's a lot of it. Um, we definitely saw uh, vegetable oil prices internationally go up after that. Um, so Ukraine and Russia export a lot of sunflower oil, and you know, we already had a tight vegetable oil situation internationally before that. Uh, there was a poor canola harvest in the U.S. and Canada this year. There's been palm oil production issues in Southeast Asia, and then you had Argentina um, dealing with drought. Um, so you look at to major vegetable oils internationally. We had a tight supply, and then um, when Russia you, uh, invaded Ukraine, that took a lot of the sunflower oil off the world market. Um, so it's definitely helped drive margins. Um, and, you know, at the same time, um, well, 
actually, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a lot of it. It's just um, the lack of vegetable oil internationally is, is driving vegetable oil prices up and helping um, soybean crush margins. As you look at those margins, Scott, here we're halfway through the month of April. Are economists starting to expect another record here in this month, or are margins starting to come down? Yeah, margins are still high. Um, you know, I, I haven't seen much in the way of expectations yet for next month. I, I do think we will continue seeing high crush margins. Um, you know, at some point, we'll probably have to slow down to some degree um, just because of stocks. Um, and there are transportation issues going on right now, too, in the sector. Um, rail, rail is having a lot of labor issues and has had trouble transporting products, which could slow some of this down. Um, but, uh, you know, we're already hearing some reports of that. Um, so I think there's that we have the crush capacity um, to go higher. Um, but, you know, I think at some point it becomes, can we get the beans to those plants to continue this pace? I think we will continue to, to have strong crush, um, but it's just, can we maintain the pace um, just from a, just from being able to have enough beans and getting them there? I think, I think the margins will continue to be strong. All right. Continued encouragement to get those beans processed into their uh, constituent parts, their meal and oil. Uh, Scott, as you think about the uh, the issues that have been developing here in the soy sector, we've seen very strong demand, as you mentioned, that drought, of course, down in Brazil and in Argentina. This year, American farmers expected to plant more soy acreage. The question is, will it be enough with this strong demand? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, it would be a, a great number if we, if we could hit those intentions um, numbers. I mean, um, you know, that would put soy that high. Um, you know, and what's been interesting is since that report, um, we've seen corn really perform better in the market um, in trading than we have soy. So I think I think the market's trying to bid some of those acres back into corn out of soy. Um, you know, the chief economist at USDA, Seth Meyer, um, has a kind of a great line. He says that planning intentions report is kind of the opening bid uh, in the process. So farmers take where prices are then and, and relate how much they'd like to plant. And we've seen markets react to that. Um, you know, I, I think you, we see fertilizer costs driving a lot of a lot of what's going on. Um, and I'm not sure how much more we can shift out at, at this point as we're getting this close to planting. I, I know things are a little delayed because of weather. Um, but yeah, going back to your original question, is it enough? Um, I think this year we're going to need all the acres we can get of, of all, all crops. Um, I, I think we will be looking at a tight uh, international supply of, of crops um, through this year, just given um, you know the international war situation, droughts in South America, labor issues internationally. Um, we, we need acres of crops right now to help meet demand. We certainly do. That demand is incredible. Record crush in the month of March, according to NOPA. We've been talking about it with Scott Gurlt. He is the economist at the American Soybean Association. And Scott, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we're going to dig into policy with Jackie Fatka, the policy editor at Farm Progress. So stay with us here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out, because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear, because I'm grilling up dinner. <laughs> do you get it? Yes, good job. So, what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ag Council. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more.
Experts agree, using multiple herbicides with alternate modes of action increases your chances of beating resistant weeds. Tough 5EC is a selective contact herbicide for post-emergence control of broadleaf weeds, especially herbicide-resistant strains. Tough 5EC has a synergistic effect with HPPD inhibitors and enhances atrazine with fast results. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me. You don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We are going to be talking about policy next. Jackie Fatka, the policy editor at Farm Progress, has been keeping an eye on things happening in Washington, D.C. And one of the ongoing battles here for the past, oh, geez, 10 years has been over the waters of the U.S. law, WOTUS. And WOTUS is now being challenged at the Supreme Court. The Sackett case, we've discussed it on this program. We'll have more conversations about it now that it's heating up. But in the meantime, EPA is still making progress. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us today. Always great to talk with you, Mike. So let's talk about what the EPA is up to. Jackie, why are they doing stuff on WOTUS when it is currently sitting in front of the Supreme Court? What's Michael Regan trying to do? You know, I think they're just trying to do their due diligence. Uh, right now, they are uh, just doing some of that soliciting of input. Um, and May and June, they are working to do some roundtables. And so they're hoping to just continue that discussion of, you know, where are their opportunities to make improvements? And they are reaching out to the ag industry. Um, there's going to be five different regional roundtables and the Farm Bureau is going to help with three of those um, from my conversations with the, the lead water water person at on AFBF's staff. And so good news, at least Ag's voice is being heard. Maybe the bad news is that I think everybody wants EPA to say, hey, we're not working on this until we know for sure what the Supreme Court will do. Um, but I think this is, is more just due diligence um, and, and making sure that they are continuing in that process of making sure that voices are heard. And if the Supreme Court, uh, they're supposed to hear this later this fall, you know, if we do have a final ruling, um, you know, these rules take time. And so really EPA has got to have all their ducks in a row. So depending on what the Supreme Court says that they could move forward and their intent would probably be to try to get something out before the end of the current Biden administration. Okay. All right. So Michael Regan going to have these hearings, getting some background information, but we're not expecting any announcements from the EPA about WOTUS uh, probably until this thing gets from through the Supreme Court. Correct. I mean, we're talking roundtables in May and June. Um, the agency is going to continue to go through that information. 
And, and, and I, I anticipate that it's, it's more just to have it ready in the shoot for whenever we do find out what the Supreme Court decides later this fall. All right. Well, Jackie, another uh, issue currently percolating amongst the executive agencies in D.C. is sort of the battle between USDA and the FDA over the regulation of genetically modified animals. Currently, that's the FDA's purview, but I understand some livestock groups are looking to change that. Can you bring us up to speed? So at the end of the Trump administration, uh, the the Purdue administration, the former Secretary of Agriculture in the Trump administration, had basically put out a memorandum of understanding with the health HHS, I got to remember all the acronyms there, but the uh, Health and Human Services Department on, on basically allowing USDA to have jurisdiction over animal biotechnology. Right now, it's under the Food and Drug Administration. Well, Long story short, there was a bit of a turf war. And when that administration was heading out, the FDA was not really in agreement with what USDA's MOU was. And so as this administration came in, they are still trying to kind of work out those details of what it really means. And, you know, we just recently got an FDA confirmed uh, commissioner there at the FDA. And so USDA is that was one thing that Secretary Vilsack had said that as soon as there was a new FDA commissioner, that they were going to be working together on trying to figure out where and how to regulate animal biotech that we have currently kind of stalled out because the current system basically treats a gene edited animal. So an animal that might be bred to be resistant to PERS or even African swine fever, it's treated as a drug because it was under FDA's purview. And the hope is that it could be treated uh, where USDA could have oversight because they understand how gene technology works and they are able to regulate that under APHIS. And so there is, that's why we saw this letter last week. I think it's just another effort by those in the ag industry to continue to make their, their voice known that USDA really is probably best suited to do the regulation of animal biotechnology and continue to keep animal biotechnology on the forefront because there's a lot of issues that it can help with, whether that's disease resistance, whether that's using fewer antibiotics, a lot of key tools can be inserted into an animal and, and not in a way that would treat it as an animal drug that could take several, several years and really prolong the ability for it to get out into the field and be useful. Yeah, you know, just the delays at the FDA, I understand, are a huge concern for these groups. The House Ag Committee, I remember back in October, sent a letter, and this was probably one of the greatest understatements in political writing. They said, quote, the existing system is not conducive to the timely adoption of these sorts of innovations, since it's a, it can take decades to get a drug through the FDA approval system. Jackie, thanks for keeping an eye on this, and we'll continue to track it, hopefully, as more rules come out. But I also wanted to ask you about rural health care. Uh, that has been struggling since since the start of the pandemic. I understand USDA has now released some additional funds. Can you tell us what's happening there? You know, this is just a, um, you know, there was some funds that were included in one of the COVID packages last year to help with some of the rural health. I think we, we definitely saw some of the just shortfalls in ability from a lot of these small, smaller facilities that are in rural America to be able to continue to stay solvent, I think, is part of it. Um, you know, obviously, COVID shut down a lot of the um, non-urgent needs. And so, and, and also, too, USDA has always had some money to help support rural uh, hospitals and providers. And so this was just a, uh, there was an announcement last week for $43 million to establish these emergency rural health care grants. Um, and so this is to help 93 rural healthcare organizations and community groups across 22 states, um, and, and just another opportunity to, to help lift up some of these smaller rural facilities that are so crucial to those people who, you know, otherwise might have to drive hours to get to, to, to receive the care that they need. That is true. Jackie, you also last week wrote about an issue we've discussed here on the program a few times, and that is a new rule proposal from the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, 
mandating disclosures about a public company's climate change impact. And I understand you've got a few concerns about this potential rule. Can you bring us up to speed? You know, I always love it. Um, my dad is a farmer in Southwest Iowa. And so when I get a call from my dad and his first statement is, I know I'm not supposed to shoot the the messenger, but, um, and this was actually in reference to this story that I had written about um, a new SEC climate rule that that essentially could require banks to limit who they loan to if that loan, whoever they're going to loan to, is not doing enough on the climate. And and so this is uh, somewhat concerning on whether, uh, you know, right now it's not written at farmers. Uh, you know, some large operations are who they're targeting, not necessarily large farms, but, you know, large corporations. But this definitely could trickle down to farms. And so when we're talking about being able to quantify the climate actions that you're doing on your farm, um, you know, does that, ag does have a good story to tell, but does that come in and end up uh, limiting what a farm can do? Could it tell you that you can't apply fertilizer because of um, its climate impact? Does it tell you that you can't take an extra pass across your field because you're using more diesel? Um, you know, these are some of the concerns with whether a, a bank would be limited on offering a loan to an ag operation because the climate risk is too high. Obviously, like I said, there's a good story to tell on the sustainability of agricultural operations. But on the other side, we there are certain things that are inevitable that come on a farm that do have an impact on the climate. And so this this will be interesting to watch. You know, this is just a, a regulation that is being proposed by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, it's, you know, all part of this environmental, social and government governance disclosure standards. This is something that this administration is is proposing, working on. But on the other flip side of this, if we see a Republican-controlled House after this false election, that could be harder to to pass pass through. And you know, they could try to limit that. Um, and and you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, some of these organizations are are going to try to report this. Um, but, you know, I've had some talks with banks and, and it's hard to know how to regulate this industry. So it'll be one to watch for sure. It certainly will. And folks, if you want more information on this SEC proposal rule on Friday's show, Danielle Quist from the IDFA discussed it. You can hear that on our podcast. Jackie Fatka, Policy Editor at Farm Progress. Thanks for joining us today. Always great. Have a great one. And folks, stick with us. Mike Nag, Iowa's Secretary of Agriculture, will be joining us here when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. If you're not filling with Senex Premium Diesel, then you're not giving your fuel system the premium treatment. Senex Roadmaster XL comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, while restoring your power by up to 4.5% and your fuel economy by up to 5%. Typical number two diesel? I guess it covers the basics. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. As planting season begins across the country, the American Seed Trade Association reminds farmers to follow the basic steps for seed treatment stewardship. Follow directions on seed container labeling. Eliminate weeds in the field prior to planting. Minimize dust by using advanced seed flow lubricants. Be aware of honeybees and hives located near the field. Ensure that any spilled seeds are removed or covered by soil to protect wildlife and the environment. And remove all treated seed left in equipment. For more information, visit seed-treatment-guide.com or contact your seed dealer. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, on this Tuesday morning, we saw an export sale of soybeans to unknown destinations of 123,650 metric tons announced by USDA. That is for the current marketing year. As we look at the market trade, we see light mixed action here throughout the grains with corn and soybeans trading uh, slightly lower. Wheat futures are slightly higher after yesterday's big gains across the board. Now, U.S. winter wheat ratings fell again this week, although they remain just above record low levels for mid-April set in 1996. A short crop is now all but assured. We just don't know yet 
how short. USDA statisticians will be walking fields to derive their estimate for the May 12th WASDE report starting here in about 10 days, but that will be a challenge considering the lateness of the crop. U.S. corn planting advanced to 4% as of Sunday, but below the five-year average of 6%. Farmers are nervous, as are the markets, as we expect things to open up enough uh, by mid-May to get the crop planted, although progress is something that we're going to have to watch very closely. Numbers on the board right now, May corn down 6, 807 at a quarter. December down 4 to quarter, 745 at a half. May soybeans too lower, 1712 at three quarters. November down 4, 1517. May bean meal up 50 cents a ton, 466.50. May bean oil down 69.7930. May Chicago wheat three higher, 1123 at a half. July up four, 1132 at three quarters. May Kansas City wheat up a half penny, 1185 at a half. May spring wheat up eight and three quarters, 1183 and three quarters. Lean hogs, May down 82, 115.70. April feeder cattle up 77, 156.55. April live cattle up 37, 140.85. Crude oil down 418, a barrel 104.03. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in today to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. This past year has seen nearly every single commodity that that we work with here in agriculture face some kind of supply shock, whether it's grain growers looking at skyrocketing uh, input costs, whether it's cattle producers looking at drought and the impact of lack of rainfall across so much of this country. And the poultry industry is no exception. Earlier this year, high path avian influenza began its spread. And in March, it was confirmed in Iowa, putting Iowa's Secretary of Agriculture, Michael Nag on the front lines of this battle. And he joins us today to give us an update. Secretary Nag, thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, great to talk with you, Mike. Let's start with with how things progressed. Early March, we started to hear the first confirmation of HPAI in Iowa. Mike, when that comes to your desk at the Secretary of Agriculture, what happens? What mechanisms spring into place? Right. And, and, you know, unfortunately, we are dealing with it again uh, uh, in the country and in the state of Iowa. The last time we had high path in Iowa was in 2015. And, and so uh, we learned a lot of lessons. Uh, we we uh, worked together with USDA and with the poultry producers across the state. Uh, as I've been saying all along, we, we know what to do. That doesn't make it easy, but we know what to do. We have plans in place. And, and so what typically happens is uh, we, we uh, get a call that, that uh, producers experiencing increased death loss on a farm. We, we get samples uh, taken and run to uh, Ames to one of the either the USDA laboratory or the Iowa State University laboratory. We get test results. If it's positive, then we quarantine that infected premise and uh, work begins then to try to it's all about trying to contain it on that site not allow it to spread so we have to euthanize those birds we have to dispose of those birds and then of course there's a pretty extensive cleaning and disinfecting that has to happen uh, in order to get that site back into production meanwhile 
We've also drawn a circle around that infected premise, and we've also quarantined uh, neighboring sites, and we're testing those to ensure that we haven't uh, seen spread to those facilities. Again, the whole idea is here to try to catch it early so you can try to contain the spread. And you mentioned sort of the plans that were put in place as a result of the 2014-2015 outbreak. And one of them, Mike, is the updated, I believe, National HPAI Surveillance Plan. Of course, now that's been running for five or six years. Is it working the way that uh, that you folks at uh, sec- uh, Departments of Agriculture around the country had expected? You know, I think that surveillance is so, so important because even in this incident this year, uh, we started to get indication that they were they were picking up uh, wild bird uh, detections all the way up in Nova, Nova Scotia and then down the east coast of the United States. And then it worked its way across uh, into the Midwest. And now, unfortunately, it's moving north and west from, from Iowa. And so all throughout that, we've seen through uh, wild bird surveillance, we've been able to observe where it is. And, uh, and then it, it sort of moves into the domestic uh, population you know, accordingly. And, and that's maybe a, a, a pretty significant difference between 15 and this year is that we're we're very much seeing a high prevalence in the wild bird population those wild birds are introducing it to uh, to farms really independently whereas in 15 we saw a lot of uh, unfortunately a lot of movement of the virus from from site to site from farm to farm lateral movement but uh, because we've acted quickly because we've acted effectively and because producers have done significant work to increase their biosecurity we're not seeing that kind of lateral movement uh, in this incident this year that is incredible. I remember 2014, 2015, when it just seemed like if one broke in a neighborhood, it was not long mm-hmm. before they, they were all facing these sort of challenges. On the biosecurity side, Mike, as you've been working with Iowa poultry producers, what were some of the most impactful changes that they were able to make? Yeah, it, it was so true. And you could, you could see it kind of pop in an area. And then you start to think, I think what was, what was uh, very interesting for our poultry producers was to really look at what kind of what kind of equipment and people and and you know where does the feed truck move on and off of a site? Where has it been? If you've got a crew coming in to work on feeders or water lines or I- anything in a in a poultry facility, where had those folks been? Uh, am I caring for multiple facilities? And what am I doing between barns? Am I changing boots? Those were all the types of things that folks were thinking about. And so um, you know, biosecurity is not just one thing. It's very much a holistic approach of looking at essentially you're trying to keep what's outside outside and what's inside inside and then build build firewalls between facilities and so uh, really it starts with having a plan but having a plan is only part of it you can put a nice plan in a three-ring binder and put it on a shelf but that doesn't do anything if you're not implementing it so I think that's been the real uh, real significant increase this year is we've got producers that took it very seriously but not only that they implement those plans every day and, and you're seeing the benefits of that hard work yeah, absolutely. This this spread has been so much slower than it was in that previous outbreak. Mike, the concern remains HPAI exists in the wild bird population. Even if producers are the best at biosecurity, there's always right. the potential that it could continue to, to infiltrate their flocks. Is there an expectation that as the spring uh, travel season for the birds comes to a close, as they get to where they need to be for the summer, do you expect the uh, the wild outbreaks to start to slow down? We do. And, and uh, you know, we, we are now two weeks since our last uh, confirmed positive case here in the state of Iowa. Um, my, my expectation is that we, we probably aren't done yet in the state. I hope we are, but, but our, our operationally, we are still uh, assuming that we will be dealing with some positive cases. That's why biosecurity needs to remain uh, you know, high top of mind, but just watch what's happening with the the positive cases in the country. So it it was you know, we were dealing with it, and then uh, South Dakota and Minnesota and the Dakotas, and now Idaho, and you're seeing it move north and west. Well, what's happening? The migratory birds are moving north and west, and so I think that as they move through, and as uh, you know that that new introduction of the virus becomes uh, you know not as new and not as novel. Uh, then, then, then we won't be dealing with as many cases. But it, it really depends on weather. It depends on the speed of that migration. We can all hope for warmer temperatures for a lot of reasons, Mike. We got to get a crop planted here too. But certainly, from a migration standpoint, uh, it'll it'll help.
It certainly will, Mike. Apologies for that. And I wanted to check in with you about the interactions between the USDA and state departments of agriculture. Of course, you're dealing with the impacts in your state, but there's federal money, federal assistance. How has that teamwork been both for Iowa and the USDA and the other states you've been talking to about this issue? Well, it's a key partnership. You know, we uh, uh, we know that we've got to work together with USDA. Whether it's you know, uh, we're, we're doing a lot of work on African swine fever and and uh, work to prepare for and prevent that. And when it comes to a foreign animal disease, and again, remember, foreign animal diseases are are diseases that have uh, international trade implications, and that's why they they do involve. That's why it's, it's important that we do involve the USDA because, of course, they they're responsible for those trade relationships. Uh, I'd say the partnership has been working very well. We all learned that we needed to detect sooner, act quicker, um, act more efficiently, more effectively to contain the virus. And, and we've applied those lessons this time around. So I will tell you that I'm proud of my team. We've done a lot of work. I've prioritized this during my time at the department that we would be better prepared. We'd be ready to go. We'd have more capabilities. But we also know that we need the help of USDA. So right now in the Wallace Building here in Des Moines, I've got a, a state incident management uh, team that's up and running, and then we asked for some additional USDA support. And so they are working side by side with us in the in the building here, but also on farms across the state. We couldn't do it without them, and we really appreciate the again the the partnership and all of the work that's gone into improving our our preparedness. That is a good sign. And now, Mike, I wanted to ask you, of course, once the disease has been confirmed and the flocks have been quarantined and depopulated, that's just the first half of the battle. Then the producer is there with an empty barn. Hopefully we're seeing these outbreaks come to a close or at least slow down. But then what happens after a depopulation? How does that farm work back into production? Right. Good question. So, you know, those birds have to be disposed of. And so typically what we will do here in Iowa is it's a combination of either burial on site or uh, most of the, most times we're, we're composting birds with corn stalks or wood chips or the bedding that's already on the site. And that's a very effective way to, uh, again, uh, eliminate the virus. And it also is, it works pretty quickly uh, in, in the grand scheme of things. Within a month or so, uh, you've got compost that can be moved out of buildings. And, and then you begin to clean those buildings out, disinfect those buildings, and then we let them sit fallow for a, a, a couple of weeks, and then we test those barns, and if they test negative for the virus, then uh, folks can start moving on with repopulating those buildings. But of course, you don't want to do that too soon, because the worst thing that can happen is you move birds back in and you break a second time. Uh, now, USDA also does provide assistance. There's indemnification for the birds that have to be euthanized, there's assistance given to uh, pay for that disposal composting, and there's also some assistance financially given to clean and disinfect the barns. But it's a lot like crop insurance. You're glad you've got it, but it never makes you whole. Uh, but it does help with some financial assistance. But it's a financial hit to uh, each of these producers. We're talking about their livelihoods here. So the sooner we can get them safely back into production, the better. Right. It's a financial hit, not not just to the producers, but Mike, to the state of Iowa as well. Uh, Iowa is a very, very large poultry producer. Can you tell us a little bit about the economic impact so far of this HPAI outbreak? Well, that's right. And, you know, Iowa's number one in egg production uh, and we're number seven in turkey production. And, and we have a lot of livestock in the state, as you know. And, and so uh, livestock, animal agriculture is a significant uh, economic contributor to the state of Iowa, to jobs and livelihoods. And of course, right now, we're also thinking a lot about the consumers. Uh, consumers are being hammered by inflation. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for inflation, uh, some of them self-inflicted, but we want to make sure that we're producing and can meet that demand as well. So uh, we think about the consumer in this whole thing, too. Fantastic, folks. We've been talking to Mike Nag, Iowa's Secretary of Agriculture. Secretary Nag, thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you. And when we return, we're going to take a look at Oklahoma's wheat crop with Mike Schultz, Director of the Oklahoma Wheat Commission. Stay with us here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92 and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100 and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Everything changed. 
It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Joining me today is Joe Lardy, the Market Intelligence and Insights Analyst with CHS Global Research, here to talk about the April WASD report. Joe, what were some of the big takeaways from this month's report? Well, Mike, I think one of the key takeaways is that this report didn't contain any big surprises. I mean, I found the report to be largely neutral at face value. Most of the actual numbers that came in were pretty much on where the expectations were. We really still have a tight and uncertain environment, and I think the market's really going to have a hard time just doing nothing. So even though the report was largely neutral, it does have market implications. You know, on the wheat side of things, we did see, you know, very small reductions to feed and exports, which are warranted. Um, that raised ending stocks up by a little bit. Not a surprise there. We did see some adjustments on the world scene, of course, with the conflict in Russia and Ukraine. We did see some small adjustments there. It's important to remember that wheat is almost at the end of its marketing year. And so a lot of the activity has already taken place for this marketing year. So there's only small changes that are left to be made for this marketing year. It's the next marketing year that are going to be a lot bigger. How could this whole global situation affect U.S. farmers planting decisions here ahead of spring planting? This global situation has really elevated prices across the board. I mean, we're seeing 16 to $17 soybeans, nearly $8 corn and 11 plus dollar wheat. Plus, we've got really high priced cotton. And so the farmers got a lot of profitable choices this year. And I think that's going to make these planning decisions much more confusing and, and a much more difficult decision for the farmer. They're really going to have to put that pencil to paper and find out what the best cash crop is going to be for them in their area. That's Joe Lardy, Market Intelligence and Insight Analyst with CHS Global Research. And thanks for joining us here around the table. To learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership, visit cooperativeownership.com. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us here today. Yesterday afternoon, we got from the USDA this week's crop progress and conditions rating, and the markets have been watching this very closely, mainly for one commodity, and that's winter wheat. We have seen those conditions deteriorate nationwide. In fact, across the country, across the top 18 wheat-producing states right now, only 3% of winter wheat is in excellent condition. We've got another 27% in good condition, and then the number numbers 33% fair, 18% poor, 19% very poor, as that dryness and drought has continued spreading across the Southern Plains. One of the state's hardest hit by this drought is Oklahoma, and joining me today is Mike Schulte, the director, executive director, I should say, of the Oklahoma Wheat Commission. And Mike, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, yes. Thank you for having me. If you would, let's walk our listeners through the state. Mike, I imagine the Oklahoma panhandle is the hardest hit right now by the drought is that the case uh yeah so uh, certainly the dryland wheat in the panhandle are really struggling uh talking to producers out there probably most likely that wheat will just never be harvested um we, we, we we're we're fully aware that that's just going to be the case now uh and probably also the the irrigated wheat um also struggling i mean there, there will be some of that harvested but um certainly doesn't do as well whenever we don't have the rain that mother nature sends um southwest oklahoma things in the lower three counties down there uh, looking to be a complete loss and then we've had great loss uh, in the western regions of the state overall um, I'd suspect that um, there is still hope maybe for parts of central uh, Oklahoma, but uh, we certainly have had a great tiller loss in the last couple of weeks, especially with the um, higher temperatures in the mid-80s to 90s uh, and the, the winds uh, that have come you know, each and every day the last two weeks. Uh, north central Oklahoma, there is an area where things do look uh, relatively decent still. Um, uh, certainly need more moisture in that part of the state. And as of this morning, as we are talking right now, it does look like we are getting moisture in parts of north central Oklahoma uh, today that is moving through. So uh, I think uh, certainly producers are, are thankful for that right now. I bet probably giving a little bit of hope to those folks who have seen so many days without measurable rain. Mike, as as you think about heading into this summer, temperatures already in the 80s or 90s, winds have been blowing. I've seen a lot of posts on social media about concerns of, of blowouts here just because of the dryness. For those growers who are going to have to give up their wheat crop and they understand they won't be harvesting, what's the next step to get this ground through the winter in good, or excuse me, through the summer in good condition? Uh, so, you know, I think that there's still some forages available in some places. Um, I think producers may be looking at other opportunities maybe to do cover crops uh, in, in the western and, and uh, southwest regions of the state. Uh, but in many instances, it's really going to take moisture for us before we can really do anything. We are just um, extremely dry. Subsoil moisture is just nothing there. So I don't think um, you're going to see a lot of producers tearing things up um, uh, until uh, you know, we do get some moisture in place. We are uh, predicted now maybe to get rains in parts of Oklahoma this weekend, uh, and it looks like um, things on the forecast are actually um, maybe coming in to be a little bit more promising. I think that um, if, if that does happen, there certainly will be parts of uh, central and north central that will still be a available to harvest, but it's it's really just a a challenging time out in the western state. Um, we've had producers that have had grass fires and um, uh, saw pictures uh, out in Rogers Mill County last week that um, where embers had, had left the, the grass pastures into wheat fields that were already dry and, <laughs> and then the wheat fields were starting on fire. So um, it, it's certainly probably one of the most challenging times I think as far as from a drought perspective that I have seen at this period of time in the year. Certainly we've had droughts before in the past that have kind of started in the month of, of February and gone in until June, but um, this starting in, in the end of October and then going up to this point, um, uh, certainly a little bit different than what we have seen in Oklahoma. I suspect that if we would get a little bit more moisture here uh, moving forward in the future, that that um, where the wheat was dormant, that there will be opportunities um, for us to maybe rebound in some of these areas, but then in some of these other regions, it's it's probably just a little too late. Mike, how have prices been, given all the struggles looking ahead to the end of this year? Have you been seeing the market basis in Oklahoma be strong? 
Yes, so, you know, we closed down um, at the end of the week. Uh, it, it was down a little bit at 11.54 last week um, with a three-cent carry uh, to July. Uh, I suspect probably um, we're going to see uh, a robust wheat market from, from here on out moving forward just based on what we're hearing from the other 17 states that have commissions across the United States. And, um, you know, they're really in the same situation that we are in the Southern Plains uh, for the most part, even in the, the Northern U.S. and in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we have certainly uh, moved a lot of export shipments of wheat into the Far East and other regions of the world the last year and a half uh, prior to the drought situation and prior to the Ukrainian situation. And so um, with the Ukraine, Russian-Ukraine conflict that's taking place now too as well, um, certainly uh, creating a lot of challenges just in the marketplace overall. I would suspect that um, domestic millers are having maybe concerns about sourcing here um, uh, product uh, just because we are uh, shorter on our reserves than what we typically have had, uh, what we have carried over in the past. And so um, if we do continue in this in this drought before harvest, I think it's going to be a really interesting time uh, of how we see things being sourced. Uh, I suspect that there are, um, you know, the hope that we will move things into the export market, but um, I think exports have slowed up because I think the domestic millers right now are trying to source that that, that product as soon as they can get it. That makes sense. Mike Schultz, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and to give us an update on the situation there on the ground in Oklahoma. And I think I speak for a lot of our listeners who are looking at drought that say, you know, we, we hope you get that rainfall that's coming shortly. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. And folks, thank you so much for tuning in to AOA Today. Do join us tomorrow. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist from Stonex, will be joining us. We'll talk the wheat market. We'll talk corn, soybeans, and cattle. So do be sure to tune in then. Until tomorrow, thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great day. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Most folks just stick with the diesel engine oil they know, because why sweat the details? But you don't. You're one of those who'd make the switch, and we're talking to you. Cenex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. While the others experience wear and tear, you give complacency a kick in the pants. Cenex Maxtron Diesel Engine Oils. Oil that runs smart. I drive my bus in a busy city. That's why road safety is so important to me. I know that I must slow down and be extra careful when I make a wide turn. Buses need more room than cars. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, remember to give buses plenty of time and space to finish turning before driving ahead. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov.